be an obvious one, but to me, it's it's what I see in common with all the things you're talking about is data-driven performance. And that's not necessarily something that law firms have always been good at, or at least not, not data-driven in the ways maybe the clients needed them. That was ILTA CEO Joy Heathrush, and welcome to the first episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a weekly podcast, and you can expect an episode each Friday for the next 11 weeks. Please subscribe and stay updated. In the episode today, I speak with Joy about her views on the changing legal landscape. We discuss testing assumptions she had about the ILTA community as she took on the new role, trends she's seeing in the legal profession, and what law firm leaders can put into action immediately to make a noticeable difference. So without further ado, let's dive straight into the episode and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to have Joy Heathrush on the podcast today. Joy is a dear friend, mentor, and the CEO of the International Legal Technology Association, ILTA, and generally an all-around font of wisdom. So I'm very, very excited to extract some of her knowledge and wisdom from her today. Joy, welcome. Thank you. And uh, I hope I can live up to that billing. Now I now I have to up my game a little bit, Ab, and uh, I couldn't be more delighted and honored to be on your podcast. And, and all of the feelings are very mutual. So don't edit that out, just saying. Thank you. So normally I would ask people, you know, how they got into legal, but I know you've spoken extensively about this. So I'll, I'll summarize that so we can really just dive right into the meat of the matter. So Joy, you started in sort of shared services, went into technology, and you started working at Sidley Austin when you were like five years old because you were there for a couple of decades, I think. And during that time, and please do keep me honest on this, you started the first word perfect focus group. And mm-hmm at some point went to your first LawNet conference, which I think was a precursor to ILTA, is that right? Yes, indeed. Yep. Yeah, back in 1996, if my memory serves me right. And then you've been and spoken at, I believe, every single conference soon after that, right? 1998 or something like something along those lines? Yep. Excellent. Exactly. And yeah, and you became the interim CEO of ILTA late last year and fresh off the press, I think about 24 hours ago, as of uh, February 20th, you were officially the new CEO of ILTA. So congratulations first. Thank you very much. And you did quite a nice pricey of that. I will tell you one story that you, you'll probably find funny. Now, this was a very long time ago, and I was in shared services, as you said. It was my first job out of college. I hate even to tell you when that was, <laughs> 81. Some of your, a lot of your listeners probably weren't even born. And of course, I was a child prodigy. We, let's just assume that. Of course. But my boss at the time wanted me to go to word processing training and, you know, it was technology and I was sure that I was going to fail, you know, just miserably at it. And I did everything I could not to have to go to that training. I found every excuse. And finally, I couldn't go to, you know, get an excuse anymore. And I went to my training being assured that I was going to lose my job. And at lunchtime, after the first half day of training, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is so fantastic. And then, well, the rest is they say is history. And then as, as I think probably some of your listeners will know, we also had the opportunity, you and I, to work together as colleagues. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I miss all of my uh, former colleagues at Latera Microsystems tremendously. That was a great experience. And from an ILTA perspective, for those of you that like baseball, 
I've called it hitting for the cycle because I was kind of a rank and file member of LawNet before it became ILTA. And then I became a volunteer, served on the board of directors. Then I was a sponsor. So I worked on the business partner community and now on the staff. So I've checked all those boxes. But one of the things that has been just incredibly valuable to me is being able to see the organization from those different perspectives. So when I'm talking with members, when I'm talking with business partners, when I'm talking with press, you know, when I'm doing conversations like this, I can say, yes, I've been there. You know, I kind of feel your pain or I understand your excitement and let's work together to just make things even better. Yeah. And I think there's, there's so many so many learnings from just that. But one of the things I, w- I was doing some research before this, and I think it was a podcast you were speaking on. And I was telling one of my friends actually that they need to make a movie about you because I think in the podcast, you mentioned that you used to be, and this is a term that was new to me, a, a, I think Girl Friday, is that right? Is yeah, that what yeah. it's called? Exactly. Uh, and then you went from that to technology training to becoming this, you know, running the global apps for, you know, a top law firm. I was like, that needs to be a movie. I'm sure. Uh, well, with an action sequence in there somewhere, I'm sure. But Oh, yeah. Well, it ha- would have to do with drag racing, Ab. You know that. If there's there an action go. sequence, it's going to have to do with cars. But it's, you know, I, it's interesting, too. I keep telling my husband, if I ever wrote a book about myself, I would call it like the, the one one hundredth of one percent. Because I've had kind of an unusual path, but also I have red hair, which is a small, you know, kind of percentage of the population. I'm adopted, which is a small percentage of the population. I've had some interesting things in my life, and I've been very fortunate to have so many fantastic experiences and and actually work with so many amazing people over the years. It's just been great. And over the years, certainly as part of ILTA in one form or another, you've basically covered pretty much all of the roles and in some way you've touched upon all of those. And as you said, that means at least you can empathize with people a lot, lot easier in some ways. And I know as part of your, when you first started back last year as part of ILTA, the three words that I heard you repeatedly say were listen, listen, listen. So now that you're full-time CEO and you've been doing this for a few months, what were some of the things that you observed or heard as you, you know, spoke to your staff? I know you've been very busy traveling, probably traveled more than I have, which is a challenge in, in itself. And I know that we were talking about this earlier. It'll be useful to go into you know, what were some of the assumptions that you came into the role with, good or bad, that still holds true? And what were some of the things that you used to believe? And we can, you know, break this question down in a minute. But what were some of the things that you believed previously that you no longer believe anymore? So we'll start with, you know, what did you learn as you listened to the staff, the community, and, you know, all of the members of Ilterland? Yeah, and I'll try to tie that all together. I think those are those are good questions. And I will say, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with someone who said, this is just the perfect job for you because uh, you've been around so long, you know where all the bodies are buried. And I said, well... The thing is, I've been kind of away from ILTA operationally for a while, and so I don't know that I know where anybody's or bodies are buried, but I know why they were buried. You know, I know enough of the history to understand why certain things are. I mean, the listening has been a great experience. In my first three months, I spent on average four hours a day in individual conversations, either with staff, business partners, members, volunteers, press, consultants, lawyers, and people who are interested in what's happening, you know, in the, in the organization. And in my conversations with members, I mean, the things that definitely didn't surprise me is the, the continued just deep love of the organization. And not just from the members, from the business partners and of every, all the citizens of Ilta Land have this tremendous passion for the organization. And that didn't surprise me at all. 
I think that that at least in listening to the members, probably the biggest surprise that I had, or, or not surprise, but there's still lots of concerns about diversity in the legal community, and that that really hasn't changed as much as we would have hoped. <laughs> I think in the in the years that I was not a volunteer and and then kind of came back onto the staff side. In fact, in the ranks of CIOs, you know, there are a, a number of of women CIOs who are uh, not 25 anymore and are probably considering retirement in the next you know maybe three to five years, and we don't see a lot. Uh, coming up, at least in big firms, and all kinds of diversity, not just women, but people of color, generational diversity. So we haven't advanced, I think, as a community as much as we would like to in that area. And while I won't say that was a surprise, it was maybe a disappointment would be a better word. I'd love to be able to do something about that. I think the, the other thing is that, again, maybe not so much of a surprise, but certainly an insight is that so many people had ideas that they didn't know what to do with. So I think a big focus for me is to take these things I am hearing and then actually make them actionable. Ab, you, I know, have heard me say this in the time that we worked together, but the, the worst thing about asking for feedback is not doing anything with it. It's better just not to ask, right, than, than to take feedback and not, not make it actionable. For example, we had a town hall this morning and someone had a great suggestion, which I want to do something about. It's not a trivial task. So I didn't promise it was going to be done tomorrow because it's not, (laughs) you know, but we know it needs to be done and we acknowledged it. So it's taking that fantastic feedback and making it actionable. I think that's, that's one that is a priority. And there was even more of that, I think, maybe than I expected. As I've talked with our other constituents, not just our members, as I've also talked with our with the staff, again, there's this passion for the organization. And I call it the volunteer spirit that pervades the organization, not just the members, but the staff and the business partners. Everybody has this you know, sense that they have a stake in the organization. And there was a strong desire from both the staff and the business partners, and even the members, but I heard it more from the staff and business partners, for greater transparency in all kinds of ways in the organization. And I always thought of ILTA as being very transparent. So that surprised me a little bit. And I think that that that's just evolving the organization, the fact that it's so big now in a, in a good way. And so making being transparent and being communicative, very purposeful, very deliberate, very planned is extremely important. Just one of the little things that we've done there, which I thought was interesting, is we do a, a lottery for where people select their booths for Ilticon, for example. And, and we did that as a live stream this year. And we, you know, showed someone picking the names out of a cup. And it was fun, but it was also very transparent. It didn't appear as though things were happening kind of, you know, behind closed doors. And not that they were before, but it was just an opportunity to be even that next level of transparency, which I thought was very important. In talking with the business partners, I would say probably the most actionable item and in some ways surprising was that the business partners want to be want to volunteer <laughs> more you know they want to to be mo- more integrated into the community and and i had certainly felt when i was a business partner well integrated into the community and always had kind of a volunteer spirit but i was an un- i was in an unusual situation because i had this volunteer history there's a lot of desire there and in fact one of the things ilta's done is we have this partner advisory Council now the packet's been in place a uh, you know going on two years 
and and they've just been instrumental in helping advise us on on communication strategies and things we can do to help the investment of the business partners. And then I think just in general, when we talk about not ILTA specifically, but industry trends, is one of the things that surprised me is that people think innovation is overhyped. People are kind of tired of <laughs> hearing about innovation. You know, it, it's a bit of a buzzword and people want things to be more real. ILTA has a new event we're launching this year called Iltivation. We're doing our first one in New York. We hope to do as many as three this year throughout the year. The first one is coming up. And it's a very practical thing because one of the things that's always been true about ILTA is it's there's lots of good implementers in ILTA as well as good thinkers. So people have great ideas about how to turn ideas turn something, a concept, into reality. And that's very much the focus of that event. But the fact that that innovation is so hyped. I think the second one that was a little bit surprising to me about the industry is there's still a real lack of understanding about some emerging technologies. You know, AI is used as a very broad term that encompasses a lot of things like natural language processing and machine learning. And, and what does it really mean? I mean, when we say, when someone says, are we doing anything about AI? The right question is, what? Which aspect? What are you trying to do? The, the real question is, what business problem are you trying to solve? I mean, no technology is a, in and of itself a value. No, it, it has to be solving some kind of business problem. So that was very interesting to me. The need, I think, for people to be better informed about changes in the business landscape, to me, is a very urgent issue based on the conversations I've had. Consolidation, not only in the delivery of legal services, and that takes a lot of forms, you know, it's it's mergers. For example, when I joined Sidley Austin in 1986, it was 800 people, 800 people, not lawyers. And that was a really big firm in 1986. That wouldn't even be a big office of a big law firm now. So there's been tremendous consolidation there. Even in corporate law departments, you know, some law departments uh, have have decreased the number of outside counsel they use and and increased their their inside staff, including paraprofessionals, to handle common types of matters, um, firms that do a lot of real estate transactions or slip and falls if you're, you know, in that kind of business, rather than outsourcing it. So that consolidation. But there's also been vendor consolidation to to a huge degree which has implications, as you well know, not not only for the software market, but for the consumers of software. So all of that consolidation, and then we have, of course, things like alternate legal providers, where do they fit? We have something like Rain and Court, which could potentially change how software is procured. These are all trends that people need to understand better in order to be prepared to do their jobs. And I think the last one is just about, you know, talk about an overused term is the cloud, is we're all over the place still there about the cloud. Will clients permit data to be there or not? If so, what data? Why does this seem to be different from big firms to small and medium-sized firms? And there's a strong relationship here to the outsourcing of security services and managed security offerings where there's a strong, you know, set of opinions around the fact that maybe you can be more secure in the cloud if you don't have uh, 50 dedicated security professionals. So the the cloud, not just as a way to save money or to improve access, but as actually a way to address security concerns was very interesting to me. And I think something that bears even more conversation. Maybe the last trend that's worth mentioning is actually the growth of Clock, which is an interesting organization. You know, they 
they've grown from 40 members to 1,900 in three years. Wow. And we're very happy of the ways that, from an ILTA perspective, that we mm-hmm. partner with CLOCK. We have a lot of conversations around common problems, particularly in the area of cybersecurity. But it, it shows that inside corporate law departments, there are fundamental operational changes happening inside corporate law departments. And certainly ILTA is trying to address that with programming and opportunities for networking for our corporate law department members who tend to be technology focused. But in CLOCK, you have people that are not just technology focused, but are doing all kinds of operational jobs inside of corporate law departments. And this is a reasonably new discipline. People are still trying to figure out kind of what those jobs look like. And so figuring out how that area is going to grow, what the implications of that are for technology and for delivering technology is also, you know, an interesting trend to watch. So I think I gave a very long answer to your question, Ab, but hopefully that was... that was just doing doing my job for me. I don't have to say anything anymore. (laughs) But what I will do is summarize your points and then we can dig into some of them. So I think they can be summarized in things that you found within the ILTA community and general trends. So within ILTA, and it's quite interesting to see, I was on the the town hall earlier. So the first thing you mentioned was, you know, around sort of diversity in legal community. And it's it's quite interesting to know that it's also one of the five strategic goals for ILTA, right? In terms of membership diversity. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think maybe disappointed is the right word, but what I am noticing more and more, and it was it's not something, honestly, I didn't, I noticed until I started doing this podcast because the first five or six guests I booked to come on the podcast, and you're, I think, number 11, all of them were women leaders in law firm, including a number of the people that you mentioned in the town hall, like Andrea, like Meredith Lomner, and a bunch of others from all sorts of, you know, not just CIOs or administrators, but also from KM and, and lawyers and so on. So I think it is trending upwards. But it's something that, frankly, should have happened a long time ago. But, you know, small victories, it is moving in the right direction. And then the other thing, which are also a little bit related, are sort of too many ideas, what to do with good ideas. And making ideas actionable is great. And one of the things that I note down from ILTA Insight last year, which you referenced earlier in your talk, was about TNT, you know, having those tiny noticeable things. Because these are basically micro actions that shouldn't take you a long time to execute on, but it shows that you're moving in the right direction and it gets you that snowball effect. So I think that's very important. And that's kind of linked to transparency. And I really, as someone who's gone to ILTA and who's gone in for the boot selection and so on, it's really cool to hear about the live streaming because it just seemed like magic. So actually being able to, you know, lift the veil to see, you know, how the magic is done, how the boot selection takes place. I think that makes a big difference, even though it is a very simple thing maybe to do. Obviously volunteering more. And then in terms of industry trends, overhyped innovation, (laughs) I could not agree with you more. And it was funny when I was coming with the name for this podcast, one of the alternative names that I played around with, which I turned down because I didn't think it would be as as memorable as Fringe Eagle, we'll see, was a pragmatic approach to innovation. Because I think that's kind of what you need, right? So as you said, innovation needs to be more real. And I'm excited to find out, you know, what the ILTA events around innovation is all going to be like, especially asset practical focus. And those will sort of feed into the emerging topics, you know, the changes in business landscape, and of course, the cloud, because all of those things have this common 
thread that runs across them. If I could, and obviously on the, on the clock side of things as well, you know, as more and more of these other communities grow, you know, it's amazing to hear 40 to 1900. That's ginormous growth in three years. But it does show that people are interested and actually people giving you and ILTA feedback as well as other communities means they actually care a lot, right? Because people are, are not going to invest their time and effort in giving feedback unless they wanted something to be changed on the whole. One of the things if we could pick up on is what do you think is, you know, the the key thing within the changes changing business landscape? Because I hear about this a lot. Of course, consolidations there, the alternative legal service providers there. And I read earlier this week that, you know, providers like Axiom, they're going to be going public soon. It happens in the UK all the time, but it's a novel thing in, in the States. And we have a number of new law firms in the UK that are going to be listing, they're going to be up for IPO. So, I mean, that whole landscape is changing. As you become more public, it means you have to be more transparent. It means there's more accountability and that brings about other changes. But what do you think is the key thing that's actually driving the, the change in this business landscape? And I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of how should people coming into the profession now, you know, those that are exiting maybe law school or those coming in from other professions into legal, what kinds of things should they be mindful of? Because I feel like legal is quite unusual. It has certain quirks and that's probably a nice way of putting it. And it's something that people wouldn't expect from a mature profession that's been going around a long, long time. Well, I think that the undercurrent, and it may not be an obvious one, but to me, it's, it's what I see in common with all the things you're talking about is data-driven performance. And that's not necessarily something that law firms have always been good at, or at least not, not data-driven in the ways maybe the clients needed them right. to. I know that at a conference I attended last year, I was in a working group with legal operations person from Archer Daniels Midland and another one from uh, one of the insurance companies, either Fidelity or, or Prudential, I don't remember, along with some uh, law firm people and some other business partners. And, and coming out of that conversation was that, especially with the growth of this legal operations discipline, there's a lot more data-driven decision-making happening inside corporate law departments, yeah. but they're not measuring the same things law firms are measuring. And so there's a fundamental disconnect there. And there's an understanding that, that, data, that decisions need to be data-driven, but you need to know what data it is you need to capture. I mean, I know, Abby, you and I have had this conversation many times when we work together. You know, there are two kinds of data you can capture. One is purely operational. It's how well are you doing running your own business? And yeah. it's things like, how many staff do I need to do this job? And, you know, how much of X do I need to produce Y? And that's purely internal and purely operational. But then there's a whole set of data around that extra, those relationships. You know, what you're doing is everybody has customers. Lawyers have customers, software companies, everyone has customers. <laughs> so it's, it's figuring out what data is valuable to your customer and capturing the metrics that really matter in terms of those of retaining relationships. I think and I think, that, and I think there's a shift in what's happening there with law firms as well, because I think for the first time, they're starting to a, have enough data. I love speaking to law firms and, you know, as someone who trained as a lawyer, law firms things there, you know, warehouses of big data. I think in the grand scheme of things, they're not even a drop in the big data ocean, right? But they are finally getting enough and collecting enough data that they can actually run analysis on that and get some really useful insights. And I think the, the thing I've started noticing is law firms have started to care not just about their clients because they always cared about their clients, but actually going beyond that to saying, okay, what does my client care about? 
and what do their clients care about, right? And they're following almost this trajectory, this rabbit hole to say, okay, actually, if I serve my clients' clients well, which will make my clients' life easier, they're likely to stick with me. And I think part of it's driven by competition and part of it's driven by actually their clients saying, we need you to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and stickiness, again, is the undercurrent for what you just said, is that's the subtext for that. Because whatever business you're in, expanding business with an existing client or customer is inherently more profitable than going out and, and, and prospecting for new business. And so stickiness becomes really, really important. There are a lot of ways to achieve that. And actually what the now chairman emeritus of Sibley once taught me, and I never forgot it, it's, it's carried me through, a gentleman named Tom Coles, absolutely brilliant lawyer and was a fantastic leader. And he said, what, what has made Sibley such a successful firm is that we know our client's business better than they know it. We know their industry, we know their vertical, we know their business problems. Yeah. And that's, that's what it means. And it's part of that kind of listening culture as well. Mm. I think the other thing is, and as you said, law firms maybe have been, have been slow to change here, is there's been this kind of sense that it's not, and I'll use a really old-fashioned sexist term, so forgive me, but it's not gentlemanly to talk about money and talk mm. about business. And these are businesses that have been very successful without talking so openly about being good businesses, you know, yeah. running yeah. good business discipline, operational excellence. I saw that trend change early in my career. When I was first with Sidley, one, you know, one of the first large firms to bring on a professional business person yeah. to really head up the operation. It was a, a gentleman named Jim Lantonio. And, you know, he had a PhD in organizational dynamics. He had a long experience as an administrator at the Internal Revenue Service. He had been at Covington and Burling, so he knew a lot about the practice. But he professionalized things so much into what grew into a very professional business operation. And I I learned a lot from being part of that. But there's even more of it. And there again is data. It's understanding what you have, what you need, and that, that there's a difference between the client information you're holding to serve your clients and data you need to run your business. Yeah. And I it's so, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because you start seeing more and more, if you dig deeper into that into that segment, you start seeing more and more that firms are getting new or introducing new roles like COOs, right? Because they're realizing actually as a practice, as an individual lawyer or a partner, the partners of course care about their portfolio, they care about their business, but it's not widespread. And it is certainly not something that's a standard across the firm, so they want to standardize it because there are good practices and bad, and they want to eliminate as many of the bad and improve as many of the good. And I think as firms are, again, you know, the point about stickiness, as they're competing more, they also want to now grow a lot more than I think firms ever needed to in the past, right? Firms are becoming almost probably not hyper growth entities, but certainly growth entities. And they realize the only way to do that is by improving processes across the board, not in just the legal services they provide, but how the actual businesses are run. And oh, I think, I think that's, that's an nice. excellent point. And another thing that I've seen in my lifetime is, you know, 20 years ago or so, for a partner to leave a firm was scandalous. Yeah. Now, 
it really didn't happen and it was big news and now it's kind of normal. Yeah. And and partners shop their books of business and and they look for firms where they're going to feel supported and where they have great infrastructure to be able to deliver legal services and where there are synergies between existing specialties at a firm or an existing client base. Yeah. Or were they, frankly, avoiding conflicts? And it's just a normal part of business now. You know, we have procedures around lateral partners. Well, that was, you know, that was a big one-off kind of early in my career that's normal now. But that's part of the business landscape. But I think the thing that will never change, I think it's fundamental to the practice, but you just have to figure out how to make it work in the business, is there are a few things that kind of mark or significant in the practice of law. I mean, it's not enough to be a good lawyer when you practice. You have to have great client relationships and you have to manage those and and know what that means. And I think that when you're supporting lawyers, you need to understand that lawyers are trying to serve clients. They're inherently risk averse because in most cases, clients are hiring lawyers to help them manage risk in some way or the other. But a really interesting piece of insight I got at an event last year where Mary McGregor, who's the general counsel of Gowlings, was was talking about her experience. And she put it in a little different way that really struck me and stuck with me is that lawyers are also error averse, which is not the same thing as risk averse. That is an individual error of, of putting 30 in a document instead of three could be real money. It could be real impact to someone's business or to, to their life. And so understanding that there's this tremendous error aversion actually makes it feel like there should be a natural affinity for a data-driven organization. They want good data. I think it's still figuring out, though, what data you need to capture and analyze that actually maps to client satisfaction with the delivery of the legal services. Yeah, correct. And I think Mary did a really good job with that because one of the things that, and again, maybe this is an obvious thing to an outsider, I don't know, but it was something that it hit home for me was actually the error aversion is not equal to risk aversion because lawyers are quite willing to take a risk as long as it's a measured and calculated risk. That's mm-hmm. the key thing for them. And if they can see that, okay, actually me taking on this risk, which by the way, would just probably in, in real terms, it's not really a risk, but it's them adopting a new way of doing things or maybe going and you know, pursuing one of these emerging topics and technologies that you, you touched upon earlier, how will this impact my business? How will this impact my practice? And if, that, if they can actually see the connection that me trying this new process or new product or technology means that I make less errors, then they're more willing to actually take that risk. And I think one of the things that Mary talked about a little bit was from a business perspective, if you want lawyers to adopt technology, you have to, and it's like anyone, right? You have to frame it in the way where they can see the benefits for them and their clients. Absolutely, Ab, and you also have to make it easy. Mm. I mean, and and you've heard me say this before, so you can check out why well, I say this because your listeners may not have heard it before. Is, you know, again, I go back a ways. When lawyers yeah. first started bringing Blackberries, we didn't give them Blackberries, they brought them. In the early days of iPads, we didn't give lawyers iPads, they brought them. And nobody did detailed trainings for them on these things because they were simple to use and they solved a business problem. And so when, when people say lawyers hate technology, that drives me nuts. To me, that's a, that's a myth. I mean, there are people in every occupation who are technology averse, mm. but lawyers actually love technology. What they yeah. don't like is complexity. Yes. So it has to be simple. They have to know what business problem it solves and mm-hmm. it has to be what's in it for me, you yeah. know, kind of 
thing is how am I going to improve my client service by doing this or how am I going to improve my work-life balance? The other thing, and, and this was, again, a corporate law department operations person who said this, is we were talking about law firms doing innovation initiatives. And, and this guy basically said, I don't care if you're doing an innovation initiative. I don't care if you call it, you know, cherry pie project. I just want more predictability in my costs and my outcomes. So if doing an innovation initiative is how you're going to achieve that, that's fine. You don't get any points from me for calling it an innovation initiative. You get points from me by understanding what is important to me in the delivery and procurement of and evaluation, frankly, of the delivery of legal services. And so it needs to be put in that context. And that was a really valuable insight for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of it goes down to understanding what, what is, the, is the chain of work that happens, almost in a forensic term, and, you know, how does the work come into a law firm and how does it go out? And where are the gaps that need to be made efficient, which, are, which could be made more efficient? And actually, then framing it to the business and the lawyers as, look, we want you to do the right things. But we also want, and I think this was a, a takeaway from Ilza Insight as well in London, was making it easier for the lawyers to do the right things, but in the right order, right? Yeah, so, and well, it's the I second bit, everyone wants to do the right things. So yeah, that was, that was really quite cool. And, uh, and the other thing I wanted to just touch, uh, get your view on, so as you've been traveling a lot, and I know you've been speaking to a lot of different organizations, your team, law firms, what are some of the things that you feel are different across maybe different jurisdictions? And the reason I ask this, one of the things you mentioned earlier today in your town hall, actually two of them, was about making ILTA more, putting the international back in ILTA, I think you said. And then another term, which was a new term to me, which I frantically Googled afterwards, was the legal ecosystem. You know, so what do you, do you think there's a difference in the biodiversity of the ecosystem in, for example, the UK or Australia versus in the US? Yeah, that's, that's a very, very interesting question. There are a few ways to look at it. One is in terms of buying cycle. And I find buying cycle to have fundamental differences in two ways. One is by entity size and one is by jurisdiction. And part of that is cultural. I mean, in my interactions with CIOs, for example, in the UK and Europe and Australia, they seem to have, frankly, more autonomy to buy against their budget kind of in what when it makes sense to them. You know, they get mm. a budget approval and they kind of spend their money. And, and this is very- driven by the same thing as well. So do, they're driven by making the business, the pro, improving the processes or do you think they have? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, absolutely. But I think it's just in terms of of the procurement process. I'm looking very tactically here. And speaking in very broad generalizations, a lot of times you'll see, especially in big organizations in the U.S., there's kind of approvals and reapprovals and reapprovals. So there there are levels of approval even in a a budget that's established. Mm. So that's just a different, I think, a difference in procurement. I also see differences there in entity size. In some cases, there's an advantage to being a smaller entity. It feels as though there's some agility in a smaller entity at times that maybe isn't available in a bigger entity. Where I think the changes really are jurisdictionally, and of course, there are laws that that govern certain things and practices around electronic exchange of information, Mm -hmm. particularly. But there's lots of people who have greater expertise in that than I do. But the business models are fascinating here. I mean, you talked about publicly traded law firms in the UK. Of course, that's been around in in Australia for a while. I think it was one firm to begin with, and then it kind of took a while for it to catch on. But and, and in the UK, you can have non-lawyers who are partners in yes, law yes. firms, which takes those professional business people and actually gives them a stake in the profitability of the organization, which 
you know, profit sharing is a great thing. You know, yeah. it, it makes people, it's a, you know, kind of the beauty of capitalism. But here's where the competition from the big four is interesting. And, and whether you view it as real or a boogeyman, it's certainly something that you need to talk about. And I think folks would that are worried about competition from that sector, particularly in certain practice areas, and this gets back to stickiness, you know, let's circle it all the way back, is, okay, here's someone who did my audit. They understand my basic business problems really well. Maybe I should stick with them to to address it from a legal and risk management perspective. Mm-hmm. Do I agree with that? Well, no, not, not necessarily. <laughs> They're different business problems, but it's certainly part of the way that people are thinking about competition from that sector. And there's more of that, or at least I hear more about that, from as, as being a, a major business concern outside the U.S. than I hear in the U.S., I think because of differences in the practice and, and, and so forth, but that's certainly one. I think the other thing is there may be cultures as well as governments that seem to be promoting technology bleeding edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, again, anecdotally, that there are a lot of tech startups around legal in Australia. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. Yeah, uh, and Singapore is a prime example of that, where the government is actually getting involved and they have huge initiatives, in, including you know some sort of tech incubators run by the government, funded by the government, especially within the legal space. So I think maybe the Asia-Pacific region generally is a hotbed for that for whatever reason. Yes, I agree with that. And I'm really looking forward to going to Legal Fest in Australia mm-hmm. and, and hearing more about that and talking with those vendors. But I think the, uh, the other interesting one that we don't talk about much and probably should talk about more, and here I'm frankly not as knowledgeable about what's happening outside the U.S., but what's happening in the U.S. is mm. super interesting, is law schools are becoming very engaged. There are some fantastic things happening at Stanford. There are some fantastic yeah. things happening at University of California, Hastings, at Duke, things happening at Northwestern. And, and forgive me all of our law schools that I haven't <laughs> mentioned, but What's yeah, happening yeah. Is, is an understanding. It's more than just taking my contracts class and using a software contract in it rather than a railroad contract. You know, that's a step. But it's thinking about what the practice is going to look like and what law schools need to do to prepare people for, for that practice. And for example, at UC Hastings Law School, they have some curriculum around legal startups and lawyers who have left the practice to start technology companies and what kind of skill set that requires and what the implications are for the practice. And they're not the only ones that are thinking about that. I've been involved in a group called the Center for Practice Engagement and Innovation at Northwestern at Pritzker School of Law. We've been talking about what kind of technology needs to be embedded in the curriculum and what we need to be preparing people for. And there's an understanding that the job of a lawyer five years from now may not look like the job of a lawyer today, that they may not be practicing in the way we think of, but they'll be working as data scientists and technology mm-hmm. analysts and legal project managers that where the legal education is still super relevant, yep. but it may not, it may not look in service delivery the way it looks today. And, and so focusing on what's happening in law schools to me is, is very important. And I actually have a member of my team who spends a lot of time with our law firm members of ILTA and, mm-hmm. and, law schools and talking about how we can help in these kinds of initiatives. I think that also goes to the point of making it more practical, right? So there's all of these innovations that are going on. A is about educating the innovators of tomorrow, if I can be so cliched, but also about making sure that when you go into practice, and I remember going, you know, my law school days, I 
learned a lot academically. I learned a lot procedurally, but you don't really, and it's, it's kind of like going to university or college generally, right? You, you learn a lot of things, but very small percentage of those things are actually practically applicable to your first day at work. And I think law schools and other business schools and generally colleges are getting to a stage where they're like, okay, we actually need people to be able to ready to join the workforce, not just being intellectually ready, because that's been the, that's been the norm for the last however many years. And I think that that is a shift that's happening. I want to start wrapping up, just being conscious of your time. One more point I wanted to talk about was the cloud, because that's something I've been hearing for, I have no idea, ever since I found out what technology was decades ago. And I think it's something we will continue hearing. And it's quite interesting you mentioned about sort of outsourcing of service and managed security offerings. Do you think, to me, so this is my hypothesis, and I want you to sort of test it and give me your view. So I think this part of it is a mindset shift that needs to happen in what is the purpose of the cloud? And of course, there are players within the cloud space that have a vested interest and all the way from the managed service providers or managed security offerings through to you know the cloud providers like Google Cloud or Azure or whoever else. They will pitch things in a certain way as they should, as a business would. What do you think is, do you think security, is that what you're seeing is the key driver why people are now being more serious about the cloud than they have been in the past and actually starting to make the moves? Or in my view, it's actually the clients driving them to say that because that used to be an excuse a long time ago. Our clients don't want their data in the cloud. Now the clients are like, we're in the cloud. You need to come on board now. Well, I mean, we still hear that, especially from law firms that support the big banks. You know, that's that's one of the big areas where there's still a lot of concern. But last year at the ILTA LegalSec conference, which is legal security, mm-hmm. I had the, the pleasure of being the kind of facilitator for the, uh, what did we call it? I think security leaders with limited means, <laughs> which meant smaller organizations that couldn't afford a 50-person security infrastructure. And one of the screening questions I asked them at our opening session, just to get a sense of the audience was how many of you use some kind of managed security service? It was nearly everybody. And I said, well, how many of you are doing this because you can't afford the expertise it takes to secure your own systems properly? And about 110% of the hands went up because some people raised both their hands. And so it was clear to me that that is a driver to some kind of managed services. And that's that's not all cloud. I mean, in some cases, it's managing on-premises, but a lot of it is cloud. Right. It's the understanding that you may not be able to do it as well as somebody else, mm-hmm. given given the nature of your business and how much money you have to spend. I mean, security is one of those areas where, you know, you and I, Ab, we're starting our personal conversation today of talking about your house and you've moved yeah. from a one-bedroom apartment to a four-bedroom house. And I warned you that you're going to acquire enough stuff to <laughs> fill the four bedrooms. Yeah. And it's yeah. like that. I mean, security is very like that. If you have 100 people, you're going to find things for 100 people to do. There's always more stuff to do with security. But it's choosing how to spend your money when you don't have enough. I think the other thing is there's a certain amount of tailwind the dog here, not from a client perspective, but one of our members posted on an ILTA e-group the other day that one of their providers had said, I'm not just not going to support on-premises anymore. I can't do it. I can't have dual environments. And so if you want to keep your important function with me, we're going to have to do it as a SaaS model. Sometimes you don't have a lot of options to change and there will be drivers that are happening like that. But, but keeping in mind that certain clients still seem to be demanding accountability, again, the big banks around certain areas. Mm-hmm. We need to keep our eyes and ears open. But it's, it, I believe that 
I can't think of a single business of any size that doesn't have something in the cloud, whether they want to yeah. admit it or not. <laughs> and I mean, you know, the barrier to entry is getting lower and lower and the cost actually to, to implement these things are ridiculously low now, certainly for small to mid-sized organizations. And then it scales up pretty well nowadays right, as the cost of technology goes down too. Well, and I know that from just some talking to some of the large firm CIOs with whom I interact regularly, part of it, again, getting back to security concerns are not that they don't believe the cloud can be secure, mm. but they're very interested in, in business issues like how do you respond to subpoenas? You know, yeah. that's been a big topic of conversation around Google and their response to subpoenas. Who holds? Are they public encryption keys or private encryption keys and who holds them? So it's not saying the cloud is inherently not secure or less secure, inherently more secure. It's saying let's ask the right questions about this in terms of what business problems are. So some of the barriers are just people that are asking the right questions about what the right solution is for them. Mm. And I think that's good. Yeah. And then just to wrap up, we talked about a lot of different things and, you know, around sort of innovation, emerging topics, changing business landscapes and so on. And one of the key underlying things for me is to make it practical. So for law firm leaders that are sort of getting these questions from their lawyers or otherwise about, you know, we want to do something innovative. You go figure that out. What do you think is a maybe one of those sort of TNT things they can do that will start the ball rolling? What would you suggest to the law firm leaders as, you know, if you want to start your journey here, this is a good next step. The first one, well, there are kind of three. One is find a way to have a regular dialogue with stakeholders in your firm, whether it's your general counsel, whether it's your managing partner, whether it's the head of your accounting and finance committee. Find a regular time to have lunch or coffee or meet it. Make relationships with those people that let you ask them questions in a, in a less formal setting so you can have some real insight. The second one is if you, if you don't know where the money comes from, find out. And it's not enough to say, oh, well, we build by the hour, we do, you know, AFAs. It's are you watching the new matters that are opened every day? Are there new industries? Are there new types of matters? Are we doing more business with an existing client? Do we have a, a practice that has low margins now, but maybe with a little technology, the margins could be higher? Or maybe a technology, a practice group that's making lots of money, but if their realization went up from 60% to 65%, it would mean real money. And do you know that? And do you know who, who those practice areas are where technology could really benefit them. And I would say the third one is always ask what business problem are you trying to solve? You know, don't come to me and say, I need something that does X. Yeah, or I, yeah. It's like, what are you trying to do? And my favorite old example of this, and I'm really showing my age, is I had a lawyer call me, and this is in the Word Perfect days. And she right. said, how do I turn my text white in Word Perfect? <laughs> Well, I could have answered that. It was a perfectly simple answer. But what I did said was, what are you trying to do? <laughs> and she said, I'm trying to redact my document electronically. I said, oh, good. Okay, there's a better way to do that, to accomplish that task. And a colleague of yours, Ab, and a former colleague of mine, Paul Dominic, always says, listen to what they want and give them what they need. And so it's asking, what is the business problem you're trying to solve? What's outcome you're trying to achieve, what does success look like? Kind of those three questions are going to lead you down the right path, not down a false path. Perfect. And what a wonderful way to wrap up. Joy, thank you so much for coming. I think you lived up to all of the hype I built up at the start and, and then some. So as a leaving thing, what would you, where could people find out more about ILTA? If they wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing so? 
Yeah, I have a really, really difficult email address, so write down <laughs> carefully. It's joy at iltonet.org. <laughs> I know that was a lot. Go to the iltonet.org website, click on our events. There's lots of live events in your area. You can see what our upcoming in-person events are, conferences, our webinars. Look for our podcasts and recordings. We have a wealth of resources that are available to our members. And one of the great things about ILTA is it's an entity-based membership. Mm-hmm. So you pay once for your organization and anybody in the organization can access, can request to sign, sign in and you can have access to some fantastic resources. And we hope to see you, you know, at an ILTA virtual or in-person event, but by all means, joy at iltanet.org, reach out. I promise I'll get back to you. Well, after my vacation, I'll be on vacation <laughs> Monday, but after my vacation, I'll get back. Fair to enough. You. And I'll warn the audience now, once you get to know Joy and you see her anywhere, she will give you, she's, she's a prolific hugger. I am indeed. It's one of my gifts. It's one of my, it's one of my few talents. So I'll take credit for that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Joy. for having me. I really enjoyed it. And for those of you that, that I don't know that may be listening to this, I hope our paths will cross in person soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.